Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Buon Natale, Buon Natale. <laughs> Just, of course, Italian for Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. Um, um, and, and appropriate for today. Yes. Um, because I'm going to be reading from And No Bird Sang by Farley Mowat. And although I'm including a little bit of his training. So Farley Mowat is a Canadian. Yeah. Um, and uh, comes over to Britain, volunteers, comes over to Britain as a, as a, as a subaltern, um, does his training in, in, in Britain, in Scotland and elsewhere. And I'm going to do a little bit from that because there's some really funny bits in it. Yep. Uh, but then he goes to Sicily, which is why Juan Natale is so appropriate. Um, and I'm going to read a couple of extracts from the, his time in Sicily. Mega. So in this first extract, uh, Farley Mowat is training still in England, and he's a very junior subaltern, um, trying to sort of make his way within the battalion uh, and move on up um, and get a decent position. Um, but there's a little bit here about his training. September finally brought a vacancy for a subaltern with the hasty peas. Ketchison gave me his blessing, and next morning Doc and I were on a train bound south and east to join the regiment in the field. The field turned out to be the lovely rolling Sussex countryside in the valley of the River Wall. The companies were billeted in villages, with battalion headquarters in a rambling old vicarage in the hamlet of Waldron. When I reported to the adjutant, he had a surprise for me. Instead of being sent to command a rifle platoon as I had expected, I was to begin my service with the unit as an intelligence officer. Although I had only the vaguest idea what an intelligence officer was supposed to be or do, I liked both the sound of the title and the prospect of living at battalion headquarters, where I'd be at the heart of things. My command consisted of a scout and sniper section, and an intelligence section, some twenty men in all. Fortunately, they were old hands who knew their jobs, and so could carry me until I learned the form. My new job was not all work and no play. There was ample time to explore the countryside, his pubs and villages, and in particular his bird life. With the aid of a newly acquired field guide, I was able to tally many species new to me. Eventually, my English list included such notables as the bearded tit, chuff, hoopoo, twite, chiffchaff, wryneck, dotrel, and dabchick. British ornithological nomenclature was anything but dull. In mid-November, the powers that be moved us out of our comfortable billets into a crowded camp consisting of a bleak collection of Nissen huts slowly sinking into a quagmire of sticky mud. As the winter rains began in earnest, these gloomy metal tunnels, from whose corrugations condensation was forever dripping, became increasingly damp and dismal. To make things worse, the lordly folk at 1st Canadian Corps headquarters decided the regiment was due for a turn of the disciplinary screw and afflicted us with a new second-in-command, a hard-mouthed, spear-tongued major with a hyphenated Anglo-Irish name. Major O'Brien Bennett wasted no time in letting us know we had a tiger in our midst. Mud or no mud, rain or no rain, the whole regiment went back to parade-ground bashing slogging through close-order drill for endless hours in the mindless ritual which is supposed to turn men into soldiers, but which all too often turns them into automatons. 
Keeping out of O'Brien Bennett's way became synonymous with survival. But though evasion was possible for the junior officers of the rifle companies, I had to live and work under his cold eye. Clearly, he did not approve of what he saw. Smarten up, Mowat, and you'd bloody well better get on the ball, were amongst his friendlier remarks to me. On arrival at the unit, I'd begun to grow a moustache. Although not much to look at, a few pale yellow hairs which could only be seen in a strong light, it was crucial to my self-esteem, and I nurtured it in every way I could. One rainy afternoon, the new second-in-command turned us all out for a ceremonial inspection. When he got to his intelligence section, he halted in front of me, and in a voice that could be heard all over the parade square, he shouted, "'Mr. Mowat!' "'Sir?' "'What in the hell's that on your upper lip?' "'Moustache, sir.' "'Lord Jesus Christ, that's no moustache! "'It's a disgrace! "'A baby could grow a better crop on a pussy! "'Shave it off!' "'Although quaking inwardly, "'I dared not allow myself to be cowed. "'The entire regiment was listening, "'and I knew if I did not make a stand, "'I would never live it down. "'Desperation armed me. "'Sorry, sir, can't do that. "'King's regulations and orders. "'Section 56, paragraph 8, "'states that a moustache, once begun, "'may not be removed without written permission "'from the commanding officer. "'Sir?' I had him, and he knew it. Lieutenant Colonel Sutcliffe, our commanding officer, was a gentleman and also a gentle man, and he never did give the requisite permission. He was even overheard to remonstrate with the second-in-command for riding Mowat a bit too hard. O'Brien Bennett's response did not endear me to him. The little pisspot needs riding. Take the sass out of him and toughen him up. Lord Jesus Christ, sir, somebody has to make a man of him. Perhaps this really was intention towards me, but on the other hand, he may have guessed who had used his own overworked expletive to coin the soubriquet by which he became known within and without the regiment. Lord Jesus hyphen Christ. Real battle training had been singularly lacking during the first months with the unit, but in mid-December we were sent north to the Allied Forces Combined Operations Training Centre on Scotland's Loch Fyne. Here we were inducted into the mysteries of making an assault upon an enemy-held coast. For two exhausting but exhilarating weeks, we scurried up and down scramble nets swaying dizzily over icy waters from the sides of troop ships, loading and unloading ourselves from heaving little landing craft. By night, under the lash of winter rain, we practised what we had learned, pitching through heaving seas to stumble ashore in freezing surf on beaches that crackled and simulated machine-gun fire and glared palely under the light of flares. Since we were convinced this was the prelude to battle, we bore the discomfort uncomplainingly and remained at a high pitch of enthusiasm until Christmas Day. Shortly after midnight on December the 24th, we went down the scramble nets into a howling winter's night to make an assault landing on a cliff that, had he faced such an obstacle at Quebec, might have deterred General Wolfe himself. Then, when we had somehow levitated ourselves up this cliff, we were ordered to strike inland across some 20 miles of snowy moors and mountains to capture the German-held town of Oban. It was a night of utter misery and blind confusion. Half-frozen clots of soldiers were scattered about for miles in all directions. In a grey drizzle just before the dawn, I found myself in company with the commanding officer and two signallers, crouching soaked and shivering on a hilltop commanding a distant view of the lock. The signallers and I were all of his regiment with which Lieutenant Colonel Sutcliffe was still in touch, and the view was the only thing he still commanded. We were listening morosely on a backpack radio for the call signs of some of our missing troops when a message from a powerful base station came booming in. "'Good morning, men!' bellowed an insufferably jolly voice. "'This is the Camp Commandant speaking. I want to wish you all troops a most pleasant Christmas. Good show and carry on!' 
Lieutenant Colonel Sutcliffe snatched the earphones off his head and stared at me with a mild surprise. My God, Mode, did you hear that? Before I could reply, one of the signallers interrupted. Navy headquarters ship down the lock is sending an all-station blinker message there. Joyous Yuletide to all you footsloggers from the senior service. Shall I acknowledge, sir? Sutcliffe seemed to be having trouble finding his voice, so I stepped into the breach. Yes, I shrilled, my voice quivering with outrage. Send! Shove it up, you frigging ass! Slowly, Sutcliffe's face relaxed into the beginnings of a smile. Well, well, he said mildly. You might have the makings of a soldier after all. So this second section um, sees Farley Mowat on Sicily in July 1943 with the Hasty Peas. He is now a platoon commander, um, and this is one of his first um, uh, encounters with the Germans on Sicily. The first encounter was anticlimactic. An approaching pall of dust resolved itself into a small truck of unfamiliar make hurtling out of the north at breakneck speed. It did not slacken pace until it seemed about to collide with the leading Sherman, which had stopped and was tracking the approaching vehicle with its 75mm cannon. There was a shriek of brakes as the stranger skidded to a halt. Then followed a moment of absolute immobility while we stared at this apparition. Its occupants stared back, dumbfounded, into the muzzles of scopes of weapons aimed directly at them. The moment ended when two German privates in khaki uniforms of the Africa Corps leapt down to the road, hands thrown high in panic-stricken surrender. Drivers of a ration truck, they had misread their map and lost their way, a thing that was easy to do in Sicily. Having unexpectedly and bloodlessly taken our first German prisoners, we moved on. The lead tanks climbed a high saddle and paused on the crest, appearing to sniff suspiciously as their outthrust cannon swung slowly back and forth. Below us lay a flat and formless plain stretching to the foot of a massive escarpment some three miles distant, upon whose crest rose the crenellated silhouette of a town. Cautiously the tanks lumbered down the slope to the valley floor. Dust plumes rose high and straight in the still air, proclaiming our approach. Slowly we rumbled across the parched plain and began the ascent of a switchback road that zigzagged up the escarpment. The lead tank, with most of a platoon of Baker aboard, had reached the outskirts of the Hillcrest town when the crew of a hidden anti-tank gun sprang the trap the Germans had so carefully contrived for us. The town of Gramichaeli was defended by two infantry battalions of the Hermann Goering Division, supported by tanks and artillery. At the crash of the first shot, all of these forces opened fire on the nakedly exposed column, stretching across the valley below. Standing in the unroofed gunner's compartment of the lead carrier, I had been bird-watching when the battle started, my binoculars focused on a pair of red-tailed kites soaring on the updrafts from the escarpment. As I tried to hold the big birds in the shaky circle of my glasses, they went into a sudden dive, sliding swiftly out of sight. I heard a distant snarling bark, a whining scream, and then a stunning crash as a shell burst a few yards away from the carrier. Shrapnel and stone splinters sprayed against the vehicle's thin armour. It gave a skittish little leap, like a frightened horse, and slid sideways into the ditch. Half-deafened, shrouded in smoke and dust, I was so flabbergasted that I remained standing with binoculars in hand until very distantly, it seemed, I heard Corporal Hill yelling, "'Bail out! Bail out, for Jesus' sake!' 
Quite casually, I bayed, and only when I stood on the roadside did I become fully aware of the cacophony of sound and fury which had exploded on all sides. Dot MacDonald grabbed my arm, and together we rolled into the ditch behind the carrier. My other two sections had already abandoned their vehicles and were sprinting away from the road. Doc and I scrambled to our feet and joined the rout, just seconds before two of the carriers brewed up. Crash! Whoosh! Crash! Whoosh! Their gasoline tanks flamed skyward, and two immense black and golden globes blossomed over us. Panting, dishevelled, and with faces blackened by the explosions, Doc and I tumbled into a gravelly depression some fifty yards off the road, where the rest of the platoon had already taken cover. The hollow gave us all too little protection from shell bursts, but it did provide a fine view of the action. From the crest and forward slopes of the mile-long escarpment, the Germans were firing down upon our column with everything they had, and they seemed to have just about everything. During my time as battalion intelligence officer, I had thoroughly boned up on German weapons, but until this hour I had never actually seen or heard the real thing. Now I was delighted to discover that I could identify most of them. It was a discovery which excited me almost as much as if I had stumbled on a batch of new bird species. A covey of mortar shells fluted overhead and crashed into the road. 81mm medium mortars, I cried at Bates, who had crawled up beside me. He only grunted, his attention riveted on the spectacle of the lead Sherman brewing up in a dense black plume of oily smoke at the entrance to the town. Behind us all the soft-skinned vehicles of the convoy now stood abandoned. A thunderous explosion made me turn in time to see a three-ton ammunition truck going up in a stupendous display of fireworks. Just then, an incredibly rapid, wickety-wick-wick-wick snapped through the air over our heads. "'Hey, Bates!' I shouted. "'That must be an MG-42. A lot faster than our Brens.' "'Yeah, a real piss-cutter,' Bates replied sardonically. "'But you'd better keep your fucking head down, or you'll lose the bloody thing.' he added, as I raised myself to watch four streaks of brilliant orange sparks floating towards us from an enfilading position on the left of the escarpment. Rapidly swelling to balls of fire, they speeded up mysteriously as they grew larger, then they flashed overhead to burst like a string of giant firecrackers on the back wall of our hollow. For a moment I was puzzled, then I had it. Four-barrelled, flak-verling, like anti-aircraft mount, depressed for ground action. "'Mother of God, what's that?' Doc yelled as an ear-splitting whiplash of sound ended in a savage crunch that showered us with grit and gravel. I'd already heard this one, for it had been the nemesis of our carriers. It was the infamous 88, the high-velocity cannon which served the Germans in a multiple role as anti-tank, anti-aircraft or anti-personnel artillery. In days to come, its very name would become freighted with acute apprehension. But on that bright morning, as we lay before the citadel of Gramichaeli, I was naively admiring of its spectacular performance. Not so, Doc. Fuck this racket, he muttered with conviction. They're going to throw that kind of stuff around. I'm going to dig myself a hole. This was a sound idea, and we were all soon scrabbling at the hard ground with our entrenching tools, our efforts given greater impetus by a battery of 105mm gun howitzers, which opened fire from behind the Gramichaeli Ridge. The heavy shells fell in salvos of three or four, shaking the ground with horrendous crump, crump, crump. By now, our Column had recovered somewhat from the first shock of ambush and was beginning to fight back. The British priests deployed, and soon the throaty roar of their 25-pounders firing over open sights was followed by a familiar snarl as their shells tunnelled over us to erupt in bursts of flame along the face of the escarpment. The reserve squadron of Shermans rattled forward, went into hull-down positions behind some little knolls, and the wicked bark of their 75s joined the swelling din. 
Even we of the infantry, now scattered in little groups all over the flat plain, began to reply with rifle and bren fire, aimed in the general direction of the unseen enemy. Although it was a spirited reaction, it would hardly have saved the column from decimation if the enemy had only been able to keep us at arm's length. But in his desire to lure as many as possible of the leading tanks right onto the muzzles of his hidden guns, he had waited too long before opening fire. Two tanks were knocked out immediately, but the rest, finding themselves in a trap from which there was no retreat, charged straight ahead, and with such impetuosity that they overran the German guns before the gunners could reload, then rumbled on unhindered to the shelter of a row of houses. Once there, Baker Company platoons leapt off, and covered by fire from the tanks, scuttled forward into the centre of the town, where, by their mere presence, they threatened the enemy's sole avenue of retreat down a switchback road running to the north. Finding themselves in danger of being trapped in their turn, the Germans began to abandon their positions. When the first German bought it, one of Baker platoon commanders told me later, I figured we were all gone geese. We cleared off from the tanks like fleas, leaving a drowning dog, and lit out for the nearest shelter, which happened to be the town. My God, those stone houses sure look good. There wasn't any orders given. We just went charging into the place, a hell of a whooping, and I never even noticed if there were any jerrys trying to stop us. Next thing I knew... We were holed up in a big casa overlooking a crossroads where the whole son-of-bitching German army seemed to be on the move. Tanks, armoured cars, motorcycles, trucks, the works. Did we shoot at them? Not bloody likely. We were so goddamn glad to see them go, we'd probably have cheered on if we hadn't been so scared they'd clobber us. When, a little less than an hour after the first shot had been fired, the enemy fire began to wither and fall away. Those of us pinned down in the valley were, in our ignorance and arrogance, not at all surprised. It had taken a little longer to give Jerry the boot than it would have taken to dislodge a bunch of eye-ties, but we had never been in doubt as to the eventual outcome. In truth, my crowd was somewhat disappointed it was all over so quickly, and that we had had no real piece of the action. It did not occur to any of us that, through a miscalculation on the part of the enemy commander, we might have escaped destruction by the skin of our teeth. Such was the measure of our innocence. This final section is from a day or two later. And, um, yeah, another action in the heat of Sicily. Dawn had broken, and the great white sun ballooning over the far mountains began to banish the night's chill. My eyes hung heavy, and drowsily I heard a murmur of women's voices from the group of refugees. Then my eyes closed, and I dreamed of summer sun on a sandy beach, where a group of slender girls were begging me to join them in an erotic dance. As I swam slowly towards them through air which had become cool water, the dream suddenly exploded in a crashing staccato of machine gun and rifle fire. I leapt to my feet to find the road no longer empty. Six immense green painted trucks were grinding to a halt below us. As I stared, incredulous, the lead truck nosed ponderously into the ditch, canted slowly on its side, and spilled out two or three dozen grey-clad soldiers. Now I was screaming at my men, some of whom were still drugged with sleep, wildly urging the Bren gunners into action. Over 150 German infantrymen were packed into those six trucks. They had been driving all night, en route to reinforce their comrades who were holding up fur brigades advance, and most of them must have been drowsing or asleep when they were engulfed in gunfire. For a moment I was distracted by Sharon and Robinson, that pair of usually phlegmatic farm boys, clamouring to know if they should bring our anti-tank projector into action. Then a furious bellow made me turn to see Alex Campbell launching himself down the slope. He was holding a Bren tucked under his one good arm and firing a quick burst as he ran. 
Although a spare mag was clenched beneath his teeth, he was still able to roar like a maddened minotaur. For precious seconds, our fire grew ragged as we stared at Alex, appalled and awed by what he was doing. A few of the Germans tried to make use of the respite to bring rifles and Schmeisser machine pistols into play. Alex was by then only a few yards from the nearest of them, and I momentarily expected to see his mighty bulk come crashing to the ground. We all must have shared that fear, for suddenly every man in the two companies began to fire again as fast as he could. The rattle and roar of small arms and grenades rose to a crescendo, and the stretch of road below became a slaughterhouse. Alex concentrated his berserk fury on a single truck, and when he'd finished firing into it from a range of a dozen yards, his consuming hatred of the enemy must surely have been sated. Within that truck, twenty or more Germans writhed and died. Meanwhile, soldiers from the other trucks were desperately trying to bail out for a thickening curtain of bullets, grenades and mortar bombs. Not many reached the dubious shelter of the roadside ditches, and most of those who did were wounded. As they and the few others who survived began making frantic efforts to surrender, the firing petered out and soon little groups of our men began herding prisoners off the road and up the hill. Guarded by Corporal Hill's section with rifles at the ready, Amor and I descended to the road to gather intelligence. This consisted mostly of counting the dead and wounded, and of searching through blood-soaked tunics for unit identifications, documents and sold books, the German version of our paybooks. But after a time, I could no longer stand the stench in sight, and left Pat alone to the gory chore. It was not the dead that distressed me most, it was the German wounded. There are a great many of these, and most seemed to have been hard hit. We could do almost nothing for them. We had no medical supplies to spare, or even any water. One of their medical orderlies was among the handful of uninjured prisoners, but he too was helpless, for he had neither drugs nor field dressings. One ghastly vignette from that shambles haunts me still. The driver of a truck, hanging over his steering wheel, and hiccuping great gouts of cherry-pink foam from a smashed windscreen, to the accompaniment of a sound like a slush pump, sucking air as his perforated lungs laboured to expel his own heart's blood in which he was slowly drowning. Shortly after I returned to the company position, a subaltern, who shall be nameless, suggested that the best thing we could do for the wounded Germans was to put them out of their misery. When this was received with hostility by the rest of us, he tried to justify himself. God damn it, they'll only bleed to death or die of thirst. Surely to Christ it'd be kinder to put a bullet through their heads. That'll be enough of that. Alex, who had come up unseen behind us, was flushed and furious. There'll be no killing prisoners. Try anything like that and I'll see you court-martialed on a murder charge. The anomaly of hearing such sentiments voiced by a man who had just butchered twenty or thirty Germans did not strike me at the time. It does now. The line between brutal murder and heroic slaughter flickers and wavers and becomes invisible. Well, the interesting about Farley Moe is he becomes a very celebrated author um, in Canada after the war. Yeah. So a bit like George MacDonald Fraser, you know, this is someone who is a really, really class act as a writer, yeah. writing about their experiences in the Second World War, and, and they're just fantastic. And he goes all the way through Italy as well. But but the Sicily bits, um, obviously I'm you know, I'm researching that at the moment. Yeah, he so will be featuring in my book. Um, and and I've, I've read them, been to where he, the, the places he describes, and they're just fantastic. And he's got he's brilliant at some of the other characters, but also again, just how tough the fighting is. And I think that yeah. that comes across in that extra I've just read. And is this from a diary then? Did he keep a diary? Or is this I get a, that impression. Right. Yeah, yeah, I get that impression. But it is it, it isn't written in diary form. Yeah. Well, it's wonderful stuff. Merry Christmas, everyone. Yep. Cheerio. One the darling. 